Uh, would you please turn with me to your study outline that's there in your program? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, uh, as well as our friends at the Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, and uh, Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Today, we're finishing our series called What's Next as we launch into a new decade personally and as a church. And I've said this throughout this series, that the first steps we take in this new decade will be some of the most important because they kind of set the tone, they set the stage for the entire decade. I've been uh, reading a book called Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear. Tiny changes make remarkable results. An easy and proven way to build good habits and to break bad ones. And, and I've been taken with this whole idea, uh, somehow just thinking about the whole decade ahead of us and the little changes, the little habits that we can develop or the little habits we can get rid of at the beginning of this decade, what an impact they're going to have by the end of the decade. And I don't know why this has been, I've been taken with this, uh, this particular lead into a new decade. I don't remember doing it, thinking this way in 2010, certainly not in the year 2000. Remember the year 2000, um, how we were all scared to death about Y2K? Does anybody remember that? We thought when the computer switched, it was going to lead to chaos. It's going to almost be like a zombie invasion, and people are going to be looting uh, grocery stores and stuff like that. And it came with, so we were thinking a lot about Y2K. But somehow this time around, I've been thinking, we don't want to make New Year's resolutions. We want to develop habits for the new decade. New decade habits rather than New Year's resolutions. Now, next Sunday, because I've been so taken with this, we're going to start a new series. But I'm going to do kind of the same thing for another uh, few weeks. Continue to follow this theme. And we're going to pick the most central area of our lives and just in an incredibly practical and concrete way, we're going to talk about some little habits in the most central area of our lives and how that can change everything by the end of the decade. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to, or I urge you to be back here next Sunday uh, because uh, next Sunday I, I'm going to share, we're going to look at five habits. And I truly believe that if you follow the five habits that we as a church family are going to look at next Sunday, it is going to utterly and completely change your life uh, by the end of the decade. So I urge you to be there for the beginning of this new series. Now, what we've been doing uh, during this series for the past four weeks is we've been asking God each week what concrete step we can take. What's next? What's the next step in four different areas? First of all, we talked about knowing God and talked about developing just little changes in our habits about daily prayer and Bible reading. Then we talked about finding freedom and, and just the habit of being part of a life group, how that change in your schedule, just that commitment to a life group on a weekly, or maybe some of my, my group meets once a month, okay? So we're like the low commitment group, all right? So my meets once a month, uh, you might meet every other week, once a week, but, but that habit of being part of a life group uh, that habit is going to change your life. It's going to change where you end up uh, 10 years from now. And then last Sunday, Pastor Eric had a magnificent sermon. I, man, I listened to it online and just was blown away by how powerful it was. I've had tons of people tell me uh, the, the same thing. And he talked about discovering our purpose. And he talked about the habit of having a place and a way to serve God and to serve other people. How that will completely change your life by the end of the decade if you have that habit. And now today we're going to talk about making a difference. How do you make a difference for eternity? 
I, you've heard me say this many times. Your assignment, you have, you have one thing to do before you die. Just, well, it's really one with a, a second part to it. Here's your assignment. Your one assignment is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you. And you hear me say that all the time. The, the one thing you gotta make sure you do before you die is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you. Oikos, the Greek word for household, uh, which means the eight to 15 in your sphere of influence. These are people you play sports with or recreational uh, group with or people, classmates at school or people in your family, people you live uh, nearby, uh, colleagues at, at work. Uh, the eight to 15 people that do not currently follow Jesus that are in your sphere of influence. Your job is to, your assignment is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you. Uh, just th this one thing, and we need to focus in on, on just this, this one thing, and that's the key to whether we're successful or not within our life. But do everything you can to see that your oikos joins you in heaven. So what is your concrete, practical plan to do the one thing you need to do before you die? What plan do you have? What, what, what concrete, practical plan do you have to do that one thing? And my goal as your pastor is by the time you leave here in like 30 or 35 minutes or 40, who knows how this is gonna go, okay. My, my goal is by the time you walk out that door, my goal is that you will have a concrete plan when you leave here today to do the one thing that God asks you to do. Your Super Bowl assignment. This is your game time assignment. And everybody's going to walk out of here with their game time assignment for their Super Bowl for the remainder of their life in their hand as you walk out of here. Now, you know, I think we've all sensed, I know I've sensed a greater sense of urgency about this uh, since the tragic death last Sunday of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and the seven others um, in the helicopter crash. I, the greater Los Angeles area, Southern California, the nation, really even the world. I mean, do you know Kobe, the, the, most con the country he was most popular in after the United States is China. He was like the biggest sports figure in China. And, and, and so we all have been reminded of just how fragile life is, how brief life is, how, how quickly it can be taken from you. Now, of course, we're in prayer for the families of the victims of the crash, as Pastor Jarrett was just up here uh, praying for them. Of course, uh, we're in prayer for them. But could I also ask that we be in prayer uh, for Rob and Kristen Palenka, who are, who are friends of our church. Uh, they go to Mariner's Church in Irvine, but they, they love Purpose Church. Kristen and, and the children were just here a few weeks ago at the 11-11 service. Rob couldn't make it uh, because the Lakers played in Portland the night before on Saturday night. And uh, Kimberly has been texting Kristen, and I've been texting Rob, and we told them that our church is praying for them. And they wanted me to let you know that they are so appreciative uh, so appreciative of those prayers. Uh, Magic Johnson just tweeted this uh, a couple of days ago. He said, Laker Nation, praying for Laker Vice President and General Manager Rob Palinka, Kobe's agent for 20 years, best friend and confidant. He helped Kobe build a massive empire and loved him like family. Do you know that Kristen and Rob were the godparents for uh, Vanessa and, and Kobe's uh, uh, children? 
And Kobe committed his life to Christ uh, during the lowest time in his life, after the whole uh, scandal and situation in Colorado. It was during the lowest time in his life that Kobe committed his, committed his life to Christ. Now, you can do that right now. It just involves three words. Sorry, four words really. Sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry, thank you, and please. If you're watching online, or if you're in Kalispell, or in Arco, or here in our worship center, if you're listening later on on podcast, just three words or phrases. Sorry, thank you, please. God, I'm sorry for the wrong I've done in my life. Just like Kobe said, the, the sin and, and, and the sin he committed and the many sins that we all commit. I, God, I'm sorry. And then number two is thank you. Do you hear what Kobe said? Thank you for carrying me and the cross for me when I couldn't do it myself. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for carrying that cross that I couldn't carry. And thank you for carrying the cross and me. Sorry for my sin, God. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. And then please, please, uh, Jesus, would you come into my life and, and forgive my wrongdoing? Please, Jesus, would you from this point forward be my Lord, be my leader, be my king? I wanna follow you from this day forward, right now, would you just pray with me silently, wherever you are, online, or whether you're here, or listening later on, right now, would you just pray silently as I pray out loud? Oh God, I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done, things I've said, thought, um, did, people I haven't loved as I should have loved, the, the failure, oh God, I'm sorry. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you, like Kobe said, for carrying the cross for me when I couldn't, carrying actually me and the cross when I couldn't. Thank you. And please, please, Jesus, would you come into my heart, forgive me, and from this day on, I want to follow you. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my leader. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Now, our vision as a church is everyone everywhere following Jesus. And we believe at Purpose Church that the most effective way to accomplish this vision is what we call the oikos principle. And I'm using uh, much material from my friend Tom Mercer, the pastor of the High Desert Church up in Victorville. Uh, Tom writes, 95% of Christian conversions are primarily generated through relationships shared between the eight to 15 people in your world. People God has supernaturally and strategically placed on the front row of your life. You don't live where you live by accident. You don't go to school where you go to school by accident. You don't work where you work by accident. Um, you're not in the family you're in by accident. God has placed you there strategically, supernaturally for a reason. And he placed you there and he's up to something to use you, up to something good to use you in that situation. Margaret Feinberg, I love this quote, always remain suspicious that God is up to something good. Always remain suspicious. God is up to something good. He's got you where you are for a reason. He's up to something good. Now let me do a little poll. Uh, how many of you 
became a follower of Jesus Christ because of a relationship in your life, the influence of your family, your parents, um, uh, maybe uh, a classmate that you went to school with, uh, some other friend, maybe somebody at work. How many of you uh, primarily came to Christ through a relationship you had with another person? Let me just see your hands. And it's that way all the time. Uh, Tom would say it's 95 to 99%. And even when you dig a little bit deeper, and, uh, and, and, and you find out that, uh, you know, people will say, well, it was uh, Christian radio, it was Christian TV, or it was, it was an evangelist. Many times you dig behind the scenes and you find out, yeah, but the reason you listened to that or heard that or, uh, or was responsive to it is because of a relationship. I was seven years old. I came to Christ after hearing a sermon by Jack Van Impey, this evangelist right here. He just died a couple of weeks ago, went home uh, to heaven. And uh, he preached a sermon in our church, West End Presbyterian Church in Hopewell, Virginia. And so you say, well, Glenn, you're the exception. You came to Christ through an evangelist. No, the only reason I was there to hear him is because of my parents. And then my dad's the one that led me to Christ after it, it was over. And so God used Jack Van Impey, but the primary means he used were the 8 to 15. I was in my parents' oikos, and so as a result... That's why I was receptive to receiving Christ. Uh, Jack Van Impey, uh, by the way, was the greatest, the number one accordion player in the world. Now, if you're in Southern Virginia, you get a packed church, baby. You get the, the number one uh, uh, accordion player in, in the world. And uh, he, had the, he literally had the entire Bible memorized, photographic memory. And most recently, he was preaching on, he was be on TV all the time, uh, talking about Bible prophecy with a newspaper in one hand and, and, and a Bible in the other. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. I still remember as a seven-year-old, I can still remember this sermon where rock and roll, the Beatles were just coming to the United States, and he said that rock and roll music, when you listen to it, the reason it's so dangerous is because your head goes like this when you listen to it, and that releases toxins from your spinal cord that go into your brain and make you insane. And so, as a seven-year-old, I just walked around like this all the time. I don't want to get any of those toxins going. So it wasn't a perfect man, but God still... It wasn't right in everything, but he was right about Jesus, and, uh, and, and so God used him, but he primarily used the relationships in my life. Now, um, I want to put a picture of a couple guys up here. Um, this was my pastor growing up, Kennedy Smart, absolutely my hero. I want you to know, whenever I try to follow a model of a pastor in my mind, Kennedy Smart is my absolute hero. He was my pastor all through childhood and teenage and young adult years. He, he was my model. And here he is with James Kennedy. And James Kennedy is credited with starting what was called evangelism explosion, which was the primary means of evangelism used by churches in America in like the 70s and the 80s. But he said he popularized it. He was the one that was a great organizer because of what he saw in the life of my pastor, Kennedy Smart. Kennedy Smart possibly had the greatest, the greatest example of what I call the spiritual gift of evangelism of anybody that I've, I've ever known. Spiritual gift of evangelism, we believe that about 10% of Christians, have a, a, they can make opportunities to lead people to Christ. All Christians are called to take opportunities to share Christ. Everybody. But there's about 10% of us that are particularly good at making those opportunities. And he was the best I've ever, ever seen. 
I mean, and so he'd preach his sermons, I remember as a kid, and he didn't do this to be braggadocious, it's just the way he lived his life, and his sermons would go something like this, well, I took a flight from Atlanta, Georgia to Richmond, Virginia uh, a couple of days ago, and on the flight, I led everybody in rows E, F, and G to Christ, and uh, then as I walked out, I led the flight attendants to Christ, and led the pilot to Christ, and just for good measure, as I left, a couple of young ladies at the counter, I led them to Christ as well. And so you'd, you'd sit there and say, oh, that's awesome, but that's not me. I'm not wired that way. And if you were in Kennedy Smart's church, this is what you did for youth group, all right? This is what you did for youth group. They take you on Sunday afternoons and dump you out on the streets of Hopewell, Virginia, and you had to go cold turkey door to door and share Jesus. And oh, I dreaded that. Oh, all week long, I dreaded that. I remember um, one week, I, I was like a lowly freshman, ninth grade, the essence of obscurity in my high school. And, uh, and I remember I looked at the card of the name I was supposed to go visit at this door, and it was Kenny Schultz. And he was a senior and the star of the football team. And I remember just walking the sidewalk there, just praying, oh God, oh God, please, oh God, oh God. And God heard my prayers, and he was not home that afternoon. I was like. Uh, and I made a determination that even though I adored Kennedy Smart, I said, if I'm ever in a position of influence within a church, I'm going to try to come up with something. Those of you with the gift of evangelism, let me just say, sick them to a dog, okay? You go to it. Don't you dare waste time on some committee or some team or whatever. Don't, don't you dare do that. You get out there on the front lines and do your thing. But I was determined to come up with something for the other 90% like me. Because I wanted us all to have the joy. Why should the people with the spiritual gifts of evangelism be the only ones that have the joy to know that somebody's going to be in heaven because of their influence? Why should they have all the fun? And so I said, I, I, I want to I affirm something as a leader in a church where we can all do it. We can all say, say to ourselves, I can do that. And that's the, what I want to share with you with the few minutes we have left. You see, the incarnation was a military invasion. Uh, we just celebrated Christmas. Bethlehem was the beachhead, just like the invasion of Normandy in World War II. The beachhead for the invasion was Bethlehem. Uh, just like Adolf Hitler, as soon as the uh, Allied troops landed there in Normandy, he began to scramble the, the Nazi troops to go in and push them off the beachhead to keep them from establishing a beachhead. In the same way, the enemy, Satan, that when uh, the, uh, the military invasion started in Bethlehem, when Jesus arrived, the legions of Satan's army attacked the beachhead with a vengeance. Do you know that in the entire Old Testament, which is about three-fourths of the Bible. In the entire Old Testament, demon possession is only mentioned two times. But then Jesus arrives on the scene, and demonic activity is everywhere. Why? Because the enemy was alerted. There's an invasion coming, and we've got to nip it in the bud. Uh, John 12, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And he calls on us that are Christ followers to join him in his spiritual army of driving Satan out of every foothill, of foothold that he has. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When you were born again, you were not only, you were born behind enemy lines, you were born again behind enemy lines. The moment you were born again, you were born again behind enemy lines. War is your life, and war is hell. Uh, somebody handed me this piece of paper I just thought was awesome from the perspectives class. Um, uh, handed me a piece of paper after the 830 service. Asked the question, is your church a cruise ship or a battleship? Is your church a cruise ship or a battleship? By the grace of God, purpose church, until Jesus comes back, will be a battleship. Anybody want to say amen to that? Now, now here's our military objective, is to save the lost. Jesus said, the Son of Man, that means Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, the Bible says that the moment after you die, we're all going to have a conversation with God. And our assignment is to help that conversation with God go well for ourselves and for the 8 to 15 people who are the closest to us that do not currently know Jesus. That's our whole, that's the military objective. That's our assignment. The strategy is the local church. Uh, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, William Tyndale, uh, he's the guy that translated the Bible into English for the first time. If you have an English Bible with you today, this is the guy you need to thank. And the authorities didn't like it. As a matter of fact, they were so angry that he translated the Bible into English that they strangled him and then burned him to death at the stake. And William Tyndale said, the church is the one institution that exists for those outside of it. Tom Mercer said, the church is a support group for those who want to change the world. Let's just do a little bit of a fun exercise as to what the scope of our assignment from God is. Our church's average attendance is about 3,000 on, on, on a typical Sunday, um, uh, about 3,000. Uh, regular attenders, there's about 5,000 uh, in Purpose Church. And if you add in occasional attenders, uh, the total attendance, the total it's our, part of our church is about 7,000. So let's just go with the highest number, 7,000, and multiply it by the highest number of oikos, 8 to 15. So 7,000 times 15 is 105,000 people. That's the scope of our assignment from God. So next time somebody says, hey, how many people uh, go to your church? You say, uh, how many people are part of your church? Well, you say, we have a church of 105,000. And, and you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I, I know that's amazing, but 98,000 don't attend yet, okay? We have a church, 105,000, 98,000 of them don't attend yet. Uh, the tactic is to leverage our oikocentric relationships. You see this throughout the scriptures. Mark 5, verse 9, Jesus said, go home to your oikos. Translated here, your own people. In the Greek, it's oikos. In English, it's to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Uh, Luke 19, verse 9 says, Today, salvation has come to this oikos in the Greek, to this house uh, in the English. Uh, John 4, he and his whole oikos, household, believed. Mark 2, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's oikos, translated here, house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
Acts 11, verse 14, he will bring you a message through which you and all your oikos, your household, will be saved. Uh, President Ronald Reagan once said, all great change in America begins at the dinner table. All great change begins at the dinner table. Uh, what is the primary mission of the follower of, of, of Christ? Um, is it worship? And we have amazing worship here at Purpose Church. But not to show any disrespect to our worship team, worship is going to be much better in heaven. We have great fellowship. Is it fellowship? We have great fellowship here in our church, uh, particularly if you connect with a, a life group. Fellowship with each other is going to be better in heaven. Uh, it's good to increase your knowledge of God and, and knowledge of the things of the Bible. But the moment you die, when you open your eyes in heaven, you will be 10,000 times smarter about the things of God than you were just a second before. You're gonna open your eyes and say, oh, that makes sense now. Now I get it. Now I get it. So here's the question. How can our primary mission in life be something that we're gonna do better in heaven? Maybe our primary mission is something that we can no longer do in heaven. We can only do in that life, and that is to invite other people to join us there. That is our primary mission. For 2,000 years, the church has existed for this mission, to make a difference in this world and to take people with us to the next world. This is our one thing. Kimberly and I were watching um, an interview with, with Kobe Bryant. And the thing about Kobe that just, and, and, and Rob, when Rob and Kristen spoke here a year ago, Rob said this was the thing, I don't know if you remember the story he told about Kobe and him flying in a helicopter to the middle of the Pacific and being lowered in a shark cage to just watch sharks come at them because he, Kobe wanted to learn from the movements of a shark how he could weave his way through defenders more effectively. And, and, and Rob said everything in his life in Kobe's life, was single-focused on being the best basketball player that ever lived. He was single-focused, and in this, in this interview, he said, I'm going to stay in this one lane for my entire playing career. I'm going to stay in this one lane, and I'm going to eliminate anything from any other lanes or minimize anything from any other lanes. I'm going to stay in this lane and try to stay out of anything except just like Curly just said, this one thing, this is the one thing I do. And so you may have to drop or minimize or simplify some lesser things in our life in order to do the one thing. Do you have space for the Oikos Challenge? Would everybody pull out their Oikos card uh, from their program? Everybody, would you do that? Pull out the card that says Oikos, you're 8 to 15, everyone everywhere following Jesus. And here's the Oikos challenge. It's got five parts to it. Number one, make a list. Um, put down the 8 to 15 people uh, completely, those that do not currently follow Jesus. Maybe they used to follow Jesus, but now they don't, or they've never followed Jesus. Um, make a list of those in your, eight, those in your sphere of influence, the 8 to 15 that do not currently follow Jesus. Now don't worry if it's less than eight. If you're an introvert, it might be less than eight. If you're an extrovert, it might be more than 15. Don't worry, just eight to 15 is just kind of a suggestion. Emmett Smith said, it's only a dream until you write it down. Then it becomes a goal. Now does that mean if you're sitting on a plane like my pastor, Kennedy Smart, 
and you get an opportunity to share Jesus, you think to yourself, can't do it, they're not on my list. No, 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 it's certainly. But I'm just saying you're gonna have more success with those that you already have a relationship with. And so you make a list because aiming for everyone gets you no one. Aiming for everyone gets you no one. And so you make a list. Number two, you pray for everyone on that list every day. Now don't worry if you miss a day or two or three. Uh, Pray for the people on that list as often as you can. Number three, invest time and resources to develop those relationships. Um, Maybe serve them, like Pastor Eric talked about last Sunday. Serving other people develops that relationship. And then number four, invite them to church regularly. Now, most of us fail because we start with number four. We don't do the other three. I mean, here's the drill. If you're new to Purpose Church, here's how it goes. About a month from now, I will start laying a guilt trip on everyone about inviting people to the Fairplex. And because you love your pastor so much, uh, you want to do everything that I say, uh, you'll, you'll kind of get up and you'll finally just ask one person. And, and they will possibly or most likely say no. And, 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 and the, the reason is, is that we didn't do the first three. Number one, make a list, pray for them every day between now and the fairplex, and then invest some time and resources into developing that relationship, and it'll increase your odds of them saying yes, but it won't make them 100%. And so a lot of people, you gotta, you gotta persevere beyond the rejection. A lot of times people, they have that one thing, that, 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 that one time of rejection the first time, and then they never do it again because they're, they're so badly burned by that experience. Let me ask you a question. If you have a bad meal at a restaurant, do you stop ever going out to eat ever again? Uh, if you went to a ball game and your team lost, does that mean you never go to a ball game again? If you had a flat tire once, does that mean you never drive a car again? You got to persevere because here's what will happen. The first 19 times they'll say no. But God is up to something good. Be suspicious that God is up to something good. And it may even be a bad thing that God uses for good. And the 20th time you ask them, you don't realize it, but that week their husband or their wife walked out the door. You don't realize it, but that week they got a cancer diagnosis. That week they lost their job. That week they run into a difficult situation with one of their children. That, that week their heart gets broken in, 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 in some way. Uh, they lose somebody that they love. And all of a sudden on that 20th time, they say to your surprise and shock, they say yes. And God is up to something good. Number five, prepare to clearly display God's character and to discuss your faith in Jesus. And this is how Christ followers have become the biggest, fastest growing, most globally diverse movement in all of of world history. Um, Rodney Stark, Dr. Rodney Stark writes, mostly the church spread as ordinary people accepted it and then shared it with their families and friends. And the faith was carried from one community to another in this same way, probably most often by regular travelers such as merchants. Do you know how the early church grew so explosively? It grew not because of pastors, but because of business people. That's how the early church grew, because it wasn't just in the hands of pastors, it was in the hands of business people. And as they traveled in their business dealings, they spread the gospel, and that's how it grew 
explosively. I, I'm not going to take the time to do the math on it, uh, but if you look at those numbers down there, let me just kind of cut to the chase, that the, the body of Christ has grown 208,000 times faster, uh, as, faster than the world's population has grown. 208,000 times faster than the world's population has grown, and it's just one person sharing one other person. It all has happened because of the strategy on this card. Now, we may have to simplify our lives a little bit, like George's wallet. In order to do Curly's one thing, we have to simplify like George's wallet, George's uh, wallet, because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes things have to go in order for us to accomplish the one thing we're supposed to accomplish. Jim Collins said, the good, good is the enemy of the great. Good is the enemy of great, or the good is the, is the enemy of the great. Uh, I love Mark 1, verse 18. It says, right then, the two brothers, after Jesus challenged them, come follow me, they dropped their nets. Isn't that great? Dropped their nets and went with him. What is it we have to drop in our life in order to have time for the only thing he's asked us to do before we die? He says, I, I will make you fishers of men and women and boys and girls. What do we have to drop from the wallet? And I don't talk a lot major. I'm not talking you got to give up all fun or anything like that. Just, just a few, just pull out the gift card for the Tiger poster at the Orlando airport, you know. Just, just pull out uh, a couple of the things from the wallet to make room for doing the five things on this card. And I believe if we will do that habit, things are going to be different 10 years than they are today.